0: Good morning once again. It's good to be here with you. And I'm assuming that the weather here in Maryland is just as unpredictable as the temperature has been in here the last few weeks. So if you're a little cold today, I guess that's a little better than being hot. So bless the Lord anyway. Let me pray really quickly and then we'll begin. Well, God help us now as we come to your word? Help us to trust in Jesus all the more, to remember that he is worthy of all of our trust and that we have every reason to trust in him. Remind us of the trust that we have that endures through this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so a few months ago, two of our children began playing football, the real football, also known as soccer. Alan started playing first, and then Olivia started playing after that, and they really loved their time. They enjoyed their time all together. In this organization, they were one of those where they play on the same day that they practice, and they also rely on the support and volunteer help of parents. So my lovely wife volunteered me, or encouraged me, rather, to be one of the coaches for this last round of soccer in order to do that, I had to do a brief background check. I had to read through the coaching guidelines, sign a couple of papers, and that was about it. And on the Saturday morning that we started, I got one of these red T-shirts that on the back of it read, Certified Coach. Now, was I a certified coach at that point? Yes. Had I ever coached soccer before that? No. Did I know enough about soccer to coach at that level? Yeah, I guess so. Did I feel like a certified coach? No, not at all. I did not. And if this is hitting close to home, there might be lots of certified coaches in the room this morning. But I do like soccer, and I try to help Alan as he plays, so I know a little bit, and I teach him what I know, but I was a little in over my head. But something magical happened when I showed up on the Saturday mornings and I had that red T-shirt on that said certified coach on the back. Parents and kids, they started calling me what? Coach. Because I had it on the back of my shirt. I even started to get questions about private lessons. Like, hey, do you give lessons on the side? And I was like, no, I don't. Sorry. Sorry. But these parents and these students, they quickly trusted in me simply because of what was on the back of my shirt. I had to also back it up, right? I had to try to do a decent job so they would at least think that I knew what I was talking about. And we all give our trust away based on people and their titles, right? That's why if we go to a new doctor, a new dentist, a new barber, a new salon, we look around the room and we look for certificates. Certificates. Or some sort of degree that says this person is qualified to do what they do. Some sort of award that recognizes them for their work. And our trust might start there, but it doesn't end there, right? Because if you go somewhere and they don't do a good job, then that certificate doesn't mean anything to you. Right? So it's our experience that adds confidence to the trust that we give to them. It either confirms or it denies the credentials that they have. So when it comes to the Lord and the call for us to put our trust in him, he calls us to do so not simply based on a title or the names that he has for himself, but also his credentials. So not just the words that he gives to us, but also his ways. And our experience in walking with the Lord should increase our trust in him all the more, And help that trust to endure in him. So for our time in God's word, we are going to be in Psalm chapter 125. Please meet me there if you haven't turned there in your Bibles. If you're using the Bibles that are provided for us, that's on page 517. We are making our way through this trek up to Jerusalem through the Psalms of Ascent. In these pilgrim songs that were sung by God's people as they journeyed to Jerusalem to worship him. But these would have been sung by God's people in all sorts of seasons of their lives and applied to them, which is why it still applies to us today as God's people, as we long and journey towards the eternal city that is to come. So Psalm 123 of a few weeks ago was more of a song of lament. Psalm 124 from last week was more of a song of praise and thanksgiving. And Psalm 25, 125 today is more of a song of assurance. Confidence of the trust that we have in the Lord and reminding us to trust in him all the more. So here's the main idea if you're taking notes. Those who trust in the Lord have a trust that endures forever. Those who trust in the Lord have a trust that endures forever. Follow along with me as I read the text. Psalm 125, this is God's word. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. And to those who are upright in their hearts, to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So, as we focus on this passage of scripture, we're going to focus on three main reasons why we have a trust that endures if we trust in the Lord. So, first of all, it's because of his presence that endures. We have a trust that endures in the Lord because his presence endures. If you look again at verse 1, you'll see the main thrust of this passage, of this whole psalm, is those who trust in the Lord. And it says that they are like Mount Zion, who cannot be moved and who remain forever. So the psalmist is saying that those who trust in the Lord are immovable. They're unshakable. That's an outstanding statement. But what does it mean to trust in the Lord? Well, to trust in the Lord is a matter of our hearts and ultimately our hopes. It's to place our hearts and our hopes into the very hands of the Lord and to trust that he is going to take care of us and to rest in him, to give our confidence towards him. And the Bible says a lot about our trust and trusting in the Lord. So, for example, Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Or Psalm 37, for example, verses 3 and 4, it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But in Psalm 125, the psalmist here is using Mount Zion as an illustration to show how those people are that trust in the Lord. They're immovable. They're unshakable. They abide forever, like mountains. I didn't see my first mountain until maybe the age of 19 when I went to Peru. And they just, they were wonderful. I couldn't get enough of looking at them. I just kept staring at the mountains that surrounded us while we were in Cusco. And it made me feel really small, but it also made me at the same time feel really significant. The Lord created this, and he also created me, and that gave me some confidence, Right? But think about it, if the psalmist here is saying that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, they're immovable, that might sound a little misplaced, right? Like, if you're like me, maybe you don't feel immovable right now. You don't feel that you have faith or confidence in the Lord that is unshakable or that abides and remains forever, But I think that just means that we need to dig a little bit deeper into what the psalmist may mean by using this phrase, Mount Zion, to understand what this means and how this applies to us. And Mount Zion has a prevalent place all throughout the scriptures, not just in the Psalms. 2 Samuel chapter 5, for example, was the first time that the word Zion was used. We talked last week about verse 7 when King David captured this this fortress at Zion. And from then on, Zion was known as the city of David, the city of the king. But even before that, this city of the king was referred to way before David. It was in this area known as Mount Zion where Abraham made a great sacrifice, or he was willing to give a great sacrifice. He was willing to offer up his son. Now, for our children in the room, do any of you remember what happened in that story when Abraham went up to the mountain to offer up his son, Isaac? Elijah, right? What happened? The Lord provided his own sacrifice. He provided a ram. So his son, Isaac, was not sacrificed. The Lord provided a sacrifice for himself. God, for so you believe that that happened on Mount Zion. It was also this mountain, Mount Zion, that Jacob climbed in order to climb the ladder to heaven. So Jacob's ladder. And David also was confronted on this mountain in 1 Chronicles 21. And Solomon built a temple eventually on this same mountain. So Mount Zion has a prevalent place in God's word. And it's referred to more than 150 times in the Bible it has different interpretations. It has different meanings. It's described as the city of David. It's used to describe the city of Jerusalem. It's used to describe the eternal city and the new Jerusalem that awaits all of God's people. So Mount Zion kind of became this all-encompassing metaphor for the very presence of God and the rule of the king. Last January, I had the privilege to actually go to Israel, and on one of those days, we visited the Western Wall, which many of us have heard about, or maybe you've even been there before. And the Western Wall has the remnant of the temple that was destroyed, and that part of the temple is where the holies of holies laid. That's where God, the very presence of God dwelt with God's people. And today, Jews see that as the holiest place in the entire world. So it is up to them or is on them to make a journey there at least once in their lifetime. And people go there for all kinds of reasons. They go to celebrate bar mitzvahs. They make pilgrimages there. They go there during the Sabbath. In fact, the Western Wall is open 24-7, 365 days a year. It doesn't matter what the weather's like. It's always open. So I was there, and men and women had to go to their separate sides. You could see these tourists, and then you could see the people who were there to worship the Lord. They were praying, and many of them were conducting their own different rituals and readings of the Torah, etc. I was on the men's side, seeing them pray, being wowed by being in this place, but also being sad that these people were putting their hopes in their works that these people believed God would truly hear them if they were here at this wall and if they put their prayers into the holes on this wall, which is what people go there to do of all sorts of different belief systems. In case you're wondering, since it was a place of prayer, I did pray as well. I wrote a prayer down and I put it inside of that wall, but my prayer went something like this. Oh, your presence is not just here, but everywhere. Have mercy on the people here through revealing yourself through your merciful son, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. He is the hope of Israel, and he is the hope of all nations. And that's because he is. That's what the Bible teaches us, and that's what the Bible says in places like Hebrews chapter 12, which helps us to understand this meaning of Mount Zion and God's presence. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, And that all means that Jesus has come and Jesus comes to give us a new covenant. And his blood that was shed on the cross, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You might be thinking, what does that mean? Does anybody remember who Abel was and what happened to him? Who was Abel? Mm hmm. That's right. The Lord accepted his sacrifice, did not accept his brother's. His brother, out of jealousy and envy, killed Abel. And the Bible says that his blood cried out. What did it cry out for? It cried out for justice. But the Bible says that Jesus' blood from the cross also cries out for justice. But that means that Jesus was the just and he became the justifier of all who put their faith in him. That means that God's justice and God's mercy meet when Jesus died on the cross for sinners. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus so that God's mercy could be poured out on us who turn to Jesus by faith. And that means that if we put our faith in Jesus, we have his presence with us forevermore regardless of wherever we are through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that also means that if you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus, please know that we all deserve his wrath to be poured out on us, but he has already made a way for us to receive his mercy and salvation in his very presence. Jesus has already done the hard part for us. We need to put, come to him and put our faith in him this morning. And brothers and sisters, the Bible says that we have come to Mount Zion. It's like, what does that mean? That means that we have the king right now who's ruling over us. He's ruling in our hearts, and he's also ruling in heaven. That means that he is ushering in a kingdom that is unshakable and will not change and will not be moved. That also means that his presence within us is in us and not going anywhere, regardless of what our circumstances say. And that means as we live in this world and endure, let's remember that we don't have an enduring city here. But as Hebrews 13 says, we long for the city that is to come, where King Jesus will rule and reign forever and ever. So allow your trials to remind you that we're not home. And a greater city is coming to us. And for my brothers and sisters, I'll also say, as we talk about things like Mount Zion, I understand that it's a lot to pour into just a few minutes of a sermon. And you might still have questions. Or sometimes going to the Bible and to the Old Testament might feel a little intimidating for you. Be encouraged that the entire word of God fits together. It's all true and it all points to Jesus Christ either points towards his first coming, points back to his finished work on the cross, or points towards his second coming and his rule in Mount Zion. That's why Revelation 14:1 says, "Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads." God's word fits together. So as we read, interpret, and imply the scriptures, let's make sure that we're doing that rightly. So we can think of God's word as this river that's flowing towards the waterfall of Christ and then overflows and goes down to his people who are at the bottom of the stream. Let's make sure that we get it in that right order. It's pointing towards Christ, and then it applies to us. Because when we switch the order up, we can get things wrong. Our scriptures point to Jesus Christ. But also, use the Bible as you're interpreting the Bible. The Bible is its own interpreter, and it's the best interpreter that we have. And also, use the New Testament to help you to understand the Old Testament. So if someone speaks of Mount Zion in the New Testament, that can shed light onto what it would have meant in the Old Testament in the eternal sense. Remember, God's people had already hoped for his future reign. So use the New Testament to help you understand the Old Testament. And even the Old Testament helps us to have the context of the New Testament. So look through the pages of the Gospels, for example. See how Jesus would have understood and applied the Old Testament. And that should give you confidence as you go to God's word. Also, pray. If you're reading and studying the passage and you're like, I don't really get this, pray to the Holy Spirit who inspired the word for him to give you understanding. That's a prayer that he will answer and use his word and his people to do so. So a couple books that could also help us with our understanding of God's word, Gospel and Kingdom, which I highly recommend. I'll even give to you today. Come find me after church. I have two of them. And if books intimidate you, This might be a little less intimidating. It's one of my favorite children's books, The Garden and the Curtain and the Cross, which has such rich biblical theology in it. But I'm sorry I can't give this one away. It's the only one we have, and my kids like the book too. So anyway, moving on. We can trust in God's word, and we can trust in the Lord, because in him we have a trust that endures. His presence endures with us, but also his presence endures. That's point two. His presence, but also his protection, excuse me, endures. And that's what the psalmist is getting at in verse two about this protection that the Lord gives. So the, the, the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And the hills on which Jerusalem sit are a little bit lower than everything else that's around it. So it's a literal fortress or protection for God's people. So a wall that's surrounding the city. And these people, as they were traveling up to Jerusalem, they would have had the visual reminder of God's very protection of them by looking at the mountains and their surrounding of Jerusalem. And God's word says, just like that, the Lord surrounds his people. But what does that protection look like? It didn't mean that they would live in a world that was free from harm or trials or trouble. Just flip back to Psalm 124, 123 for that. There's a reason why they're crying out for relief. There's a reason why later on they're speaking about the scepter of the wicked. But that means ultimately that evil would not prevail. Evil would not have the final say. In verse 3, we get a bit of insight into what they would have needed the Lord's protection from, and that's why it says in verse 3, the scepter of the wicked, or the scepter of wickedness. So shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. That's the right to stretch out their hands, and they do wrong. And that word scepter could be used also to mean the word rod like rods and, and staffs that shepherds would have used to guide their sheep. So this rod or this staff or this scepter would have been a symbol of authority that people would have had. It also would have been a symbol of protection. If the rod is used incorrectly, it's a symbol of evil and wickedness. And then saying the scepter of wickedness, this is referring to wicked authority that would have been in place at that time, over God's people. And we unfortunately have many examples of that, even as we look at our world today, of rulers using their authority for harm and not for good in any sphere of society. And that's also why, during our pastoral prayers, we pray for people who are in authority. And we ask the Lord that they would rule with justice, That they would rule in his ways. That they would not produce evil, but good. But does that part of the pastoral prayer kind of seem like, yeah, we can ask for that. But is it going to happen? Does it kind of ring hollow as we sit and ponder about all of the injustice that we can see around us? Not just here, but any country that you can name. Or even think of God's people all throughout history. Think about God's people in Egypt. They were held captive in slavery for over 400 years. The scepter of wickedness was over them. Or the Babylonian captivity, where even Mount Zion was taking siege, and the scepter of wickedness reigned for 70 years. Or even the coming of the Messiah himself, who was unjustly arrested, tried, sentenced to a Roman crucifixion or first-history Christians who had to deal with the reign of Nero, and a tense persecution that would have happened there, or even the persecution that lingers and remains today in countries like Iran or India or North Africa or North Korea or in Nigeria, like I mentioned earlier. Is God actually going to answer those prayers? Here's what Charles Spurgeon once said. He says, the saints abide forever. But their troubles will not. We abide forever, but our troubles will not. See, Pharaoh had to let God's people go so that they could worship Him. The exiles were allowed to return home to worship the Lord. And the Messiah, Jesus Christ, rose from the grave, defeating death in the process. He says that all of God's people will be brought home safely. And even in the rest of verse 3, it talks about the scepter of wickedness not resting on the land allotted to the righteousness. Meaning not resting on the land where God's presence dwelled, Mount Zion. It would not remain there because God would ultimately rule from there. But what land actually is this? Again, if we take the Bible holistically, we have to know that this might have been referring to one geographical location, but it points well beyond that. And even today, if we're thinking, how does this apply to us directly? It doesn't apply to our country. It doesn't apply to another place in this world. But God uses his people, the gatherings of his people, as sort of assemblies or embassies of God's kingdom here on earth. Like when my family lived in London, we made a few trips to the U.S. Embassy. Two of our kids were born there. And we always got these questions like, are they British citizens? No, they don't go that easy on us Americans, just so you know. It's not that simple. So then how do you get their birth certificate or their their social security cards? Go to the U.S. Embassy. There we are on U.S. soil and do everything there that we need to do. And if we think about the church, here is where the Lord's reign should be magnified and seen on the earth. And even though there's other scepters and other rulers all around us, here in the church should be safe and secure for God's people. And we should be calling, welcoming those who are outside to come in and receive the safety and the covering by being a citizen of heaven because of Jesus Christ and his finished work where all nations, tribes, and tongue will one day gather around the throne, worshiping him as we just sung about earlier, under the scepter of the good shepherd, shepherd, Jesus Christ the Lord. A few quick points of application of how we should think about this, even as a church. We should think about wise leadership, we should think about meaningful membership, and we should think about missions. So even in leadership, many of you in here already are in leadership. You served our church as elders or our deacons, or you aspire for those things. Praise the Lord for that. But that's why that process kind of takes a little bit, because we want to make sure that we're doing so wisely. And we can pray as a church for more elders and deacons to be raised up to lead and to serve the church well. And please pray for us as leaders of the church that we would do so with God's wisdom and not with our own wisdom. So wise leadership, but also meaningful membership, meaning it's vital that if we're going to represent the king here on earth, that we do so in a meaningful way. That means we all matter as members of this church. So here's your plug for the members meeting. Please come today, right? What we do there matters when we pray, when we think about decisions, When we talk about bringing in members to membership as a church, or we talk about potential elders or deacon nominations, that takes the work of the church doing so together so we can represent King Jesus well. And then lastly, missions. So we can think globally and locally and kind of do so at the same time. So if you're a member and you have our directory on the back where you have our supported workers page, use that during your time of prayer. If you see something in the news that happens in a country that they're located in, pray for them, but maybe even send an email to them. We were on the mission field for several years, and it can get lonely when you don't hear from anybody. Send them a word. Just let them know you're praying for them and thinking of them. Send them a word of encouragement that will bless them. But even as we think locally, let's pray for the ministry of campus outreach that's coming here just in a few weeks and those who are coming to work with us as we partner with them on the campus of University of Maryland. And in case you don't know, the nations are already there. There are people from all sorts of countries who are there who need Jesus Christ and his salvation that he offers. Let's pray that our church can be good partners with them and that the Lord would use that ministry to draw more people to come to faith in him. Back to Psalm 125. So the Lord is saying here that evil and wicked rulers have an expiration date. They will not endure forever, even if it feels like they're enduring forever. And that's why it says in the ESV, lest the righteous shall stretch out their hands and do wrong. Now, raise your hands if you use the word lest, L-E-S-T, this past week. That might be hard for us to understand, Right? The CSB kind of helps us to understand that meaning of that verse. It says, The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. We understand that part. So that the righteous will not apply their hands to injustice. So if you see less, just think, so that. So that the righteous would not apply their hands to injustice and do wrong. Maybe because they grow weary and waiting for the Lord to provide for them. Maybe because they think, I have a way that will settle things and bring justice right now. So then they stretch out their hands and do wrong. God's word is saying evil will not endure so that his righteous don't have to take justice into their own hands. And brothers and sisters, there may be much trouble and wickedness in our world. And at times it seems like evil is winning And like the scepter of wickedness, will is resting on the land of all God's people. But trust in the Lord that our good shepherd has a rod and staff to comfort us and to protect us and to help us. And even remember that Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. You are held in the master's hands right now. Wickedness will not remain forever. And in Zion, the land that is allotted to the righteous, evil will not reign because Jesus will reign and rule forever. In the meantime, we are safe in his hands. So trust in the Lord. They will not have a final say. And our king is not threatened by the rulers of this world. Pick a ruler you can think of, any country, past, present, or potential future. What does the Lord say about them in Isaiah chapter 40? Maybe you can read it later. He says they're like a drop in a bucket, they're like just a, a, a speck that's on a scale. He says there are empty nothingness before Him. So we can trust in the Lord, in His rule, in His presence, in His protection even as we long for his peace to come to his people. Which brings us to point three. Those who trust in the Lord have a trust that endures, that of his presence, his protection, and also his peace. Look at verse four. It says, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts, but to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So, verse 4 starts with a shift uh, from these declarations of God's presence and His protection to a request and declaration of Him to do good to His people. God's people are asking for the Lord to show His goodness so that they can continue to trust in Him. That's why it says, do good to those who are good there in verse 4. Now, again, if we're using the Bible to interpret the Bible, we should remember that, hey, I thought somebody said there's no one good. No one righteous, no, not one. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3. Correct. But remember that Paul was simply quoting scripture from Psalm 53 There is no one righteous, no, not one, which should be another encouragement that this thinking is not something that's brand new. Paul was interpreting scripture and rightly applying them to the finished work of Christ. So that means that the good here, those who are upright in heart, are those who are on the path towards Mount Zion. Their heart's desire are to remain along the path and to carry on in their pilgrimage. They may be tired along the way. They may be troubled. They may be weary. They may be worn out. They might be limping along the way, but they're trusting in the Lord, the King himself to get them home safely. Kids in the room, do y'all like to sleep? Raise your hand if you like sleeping, like you enjoy it. It's a good number of you. Do you like taking naps when your parents tell you to take a nap? Okay. If you're honest, or well maybe the parents can answer, it's probably no, right? And you saw all these hands that went up. They like sleeping. Kids, are you that compliant when it's bedtime? Probably not, right? Especially when it's summer because there's all this stuff to do. There's all this fun that we can have. And you kind of just run and run and run and run and run until you meet the point of exhaustion. And then at some point, you fall asleep. And then you wake up in the morning and it's like, I'm in my bed. Have you ever wondered how you actually got there? You got there because somebody picked you up and they carried you and made sure you got there safely. And as we think about our life in this world, saints, our journey towards Mount Zion is like that. When well, we're tired, where we're weary along the way, and we know the direction, but we're not sure exactly how we're going to get there, the king himself will lift us up and carry us home to safety. And he will not lose anybody that calls on the name of the Lord. That's why Jesus says nobody can snatch us out of his hands. You will get there safely. So press on, dear brothers and sisters. That peace is waiting for us. So the righteous are these people that trust in the Lord and that he is the one that's going to bring us this peace. But unfortunately, not everybody has this same trust. That's why it says in verse 5, These people who turn aside to their crooked ways. In other words, it's talking about these people who may have thought that they would get home to Mount Zion at one point. But then the rulers of this world, it seemed like they were winning. And they just thought, maybe I'll go that way instead. Turn towards their wicked ways. That specifically would have been referring to Jews who may have learned the Torah. They may have heard about God and his ways, but they eventually thought, I want to do something else. Kids, we love you here. We're glad that you're here. And trust that your parents are telling you this as well. But their faith can be passed on and shared with you, but your faith needs to be your faith. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ Himself. That applies to our teens as well. We need to put our faith into Jesus Christ. Regardless of what we've learned or heard, you might be tempted to believe that the rulers of this world have a better way, but they do not trust in the Lord. And some of these people might have thought that the the presence and the protection that these wicked rulers would have offered would have offered ultimate peace for them or at least peace in their time. So let me just go that way. But this should remind us all to not look to the rulers of this world to give us only what God has promised to give us. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transfer, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things under himself, meaning to put all things under his feet. Let's remember that nobody else has that resume. No president, no former president, no presidential hopeful will put all things under their feet. Only Jesus would do that. And he will usher in peace by his justice. That's why Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let your hearts not be troubled or afraid. He will judge rightly, and in him we will have peace. He will judge rightly, and he will reward his people. And that's why this psalm ends with a a cry for peace. That's why it says, peace be upon Israel. Again, that's not just referring to a geographical location, In this psalm, he's talking about God's people. So if you look back really quickly over the psalm, in verse 1, he refers to those who trust in the Lord. In verse 2, his people, as in the Lord's people, or the people that the Lord surrounds. In verse 3, the righteous. In verse 4, the good and the upright in heart. And in verse 5, Israel. In other words, he's talking about God's people. And God's people are calling on the Lord for his peace. It's a declaration that that peace will come, but it's also a prayer request. And they trust in the Lord because of his enduring presence, his protection, and they trust that he will usher in enduring peace. They trust that he will do good to his people, evildoers will be led away, and that in that we will have complete peace with the Lord. Maybe think of Isaiah chapter 9, for example. It shows the fact that God's justice is the means by which he usher in his peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who's known as the Prince of Peace, to die on the cross and rise from the grave. So even as we live in this world, we can have peace with God, we can have our sins forgiven, and we can have our future peace secured with him forever. And that's why we'll sing these words in just a few minutes. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I'll walk. For there my heart has found his treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Church, let's trust in our king's presence, in his protection, and the peace that awaits us because he will make good on all his promises. We can trust in him. Let's pray. God, would you increase our trust in you? Give us a peace that endures because you endures. You endure like Mount Zion. You surround your people. You are faithful, Lord. Help us to believe in you. Help us to long for the day where we will see your reign in full on Mount Zion, where you will rule with a scepter of justice and righteousness and peace. And we thank you that we can have a glimpse of that right now through your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, give us faith to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.